Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and with me is the TLS's answer to William the Conqueror's companion, Robert of Moulin, who became a great feudal landlord in the second half of the 11th century. It's Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. I'm wondering how Baroque and extravagant well, I can get with this. I mean, in what way would you say I resemble him most? Is it I is it kind of my unrivaled wisdom it's and your my like, military nous? You've looked him up, haven't you? Have you looked is it the crown? Have you looked him up? <laughs> yes or no? You have looked him up. The other thing I want to talk to you about is uh, in the lift down here, you made the suggestion that wearing a scarf oh, stops you getting ill. Well, no, it just it lessens the symptoms. No, it does. It slows but, it down. But it I does. refuse to accept that. How medically does wearing a scarf stop you getting a cough? Keeping or your chest warm. But... Why? Well, How? Do, would you not go ill if you went out with a I don't go outside wear a scarf. with a, like a décolleté top on? Oh, yes, you probably would get ill, wouldn't you? Great phrase, though. We, we can continue this later. Before we go on, remember, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. And please do review us on iTunes. I haven't actually checked if anybody has done so since last week when Thea scandalously wanted to do the podcast equivalent of retweeting praise, but I am going to check at some point. You really got it in for me this week. No. <laughs> It's affectionate. Uh, coming up on the show today, in support of our wonderful science fiction issue this week, we have a long and thoughtful piece on the creation and adaption of utopias and dystopias in modern thought. Chloe Houston will tell us more. And Thea, you've suggested to me that you have a favourite utopia. Does everyone not have a favourite I don't have utopia? a favourite utopia. I don't really know what you mean. Well, I mean, either a fictional one or, or an actual constructed on. one. Mine is an actual constructed one. Where? Uh just outside of Venice, yes. there's a place called Palmanova. Yeah. Palmanova, which was built in uh, fifteen something rather mid 1500s, built by the Ven- the Venetians as a fortress against the uh, Ottoman Empire, and it was constructed as this this enormous, I think, eight or nine pointed star. Okay. Um, and they, so they constructed this this lavish uh, architectural uh, thing, and and then found that no one wanted to live there. No one wanted to to leave their home to to take up a new life in inside this, the in star this, in in this exactly in this star, and so I think and I, I owe Michael Caine's um, for this this information now. I think what they then did was to try and populate it. They just decided that they would pardon criminals as long as they promised to go and populate this really this weird star. Yeah, and it's still there. And why? And you can what, go, why? What was in it for them? Well, they just got to justify the Venetian the- Republic's very expensive architectural dream. There we go. It's impractical <laughs> utopia, isn't it? That's what... It looks incredible from... I mean, look it up online. Yeah. It looks incredible from... Palmanova. The, uh, Palmanova, yeah. Um, that's what from I said. We'll get into utopias then. Uh, plus, Lucy Disney Dallas has been in conversation with Nick Harkaway, whose new novel she picked as one of her books of the year last week. And finally, does the world really need another biography of Muhammad Ali, not least after that wonderful book, The Fight by Norman Mailer? Well, Norman Mailer's biographer, J. Michael Lennon, says yes and welcomes Jonathan Igg's new life of the greatest boxer of all time. Mike will explain why the book is so good.
Utopia and its snarling cousin dystopia is a concept that is endlessly adapted to contemporary circumstances, being both contingent and amorphous. When Thomas More coined Utopia 500 years ago, the punning in the term codified that concept. Ooh meaning no and you meaning good. The ideal can never exist however much you pursue it. The bad seems ever to loom, however. John Stuart Mill may have originated the label in 1868 when he called the Conservative government dystopians or cacotopians. Although I said that on Twitter and someone's already said that might be disputed and pointed to a reference from 100 years earlier. So we'll see about that. But the idea of dystopia has, in any case, flowered with especially pungent proliferation in recent times. As Ursula Le Guin has said, dystopias are certainly easier to imagine these days when unstable demagogues are able to spread their message with greater ease than at any time in human history. Chloe Houston has reviewed a number of books on utopias and dystopias, noting that Moore is curiously distant from much of current discourse. He's too ironic, too arch, too difficult for today's more simple intellectual demands. She does note some comparisons between Moore's utopia and the America of Donald Trump, which would be wrong not to reference, both nations demanding walls, isolation and the suspicion of foreigners. The former, though, disdainful of capitalism and the lust for gold. This is Chloe saying, the utopians who use gold to make chamber pots and slave chains and mock visitors wearing expensive jewellery would find Trump Tower hilarious. So they would. Chloe Houston joins Thea and me now. Chloe, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you. You open uh, the piece with a question, so maybe we should try and start there. What place does Utopia have in 2017? Good question. It was a good question, and you indeed asked it. (laughs) That's Yeah, indeed, indeed. You could answer that question by saying it has no place at all. It's difficult, I think, for us to talk about utopia in any you know kind of realistic or useful sense partly because of just the associations of the word the concept the literary form the genre um it isn't uh you know a a sort of practically minded um idea or way of thinking um and so you know to a certain extent i think utopia has been quite widely rejected um as a a useful way of thinking do you you Um, think do you think thomas moore's no longer as significant in this as he he once was is it is it a bit like plato's republic that people occasionally reference it but not many people have read it well i don't know about that that's an interesting question how many people have actually read utopia i mean i would say and i wouldn't say actually that thomas more is too difficult or too obtuse for a contemporary audience to understand i mean i think um certainly you know i mean i teach utopia with students and I think they still find it very you know kind of relevant and interesting and there's there's a lot in there for the for modern reader so I don't think it's that more no longer speaks to the contemporary age um I think it's rather that we have uh maybe even you know a slightly outdated sense of utopia the text which is that more intended to portray an ideal society um in his utopia and so the elements of utopia that seem ridiculous to us or or um or non-ideal we take as flaws in the text whereas of course you know um i think what more is really interested in is really opening up a space to think about um how human life might be improved or how humans might live better lives Um, and that's what utopias do i think so really in answer to that original question what place does utopia have in 2017 um i started by saying in some ways it doesn't seem to have a place you know you won't be surprised to hear that i think it it still does actually because utopia offers us a way of thinking um, about the world, it offers us an imaginative space, which to my mind is still very necessary and, and really compelling. And I think that is what is present in Moore's Utopia too. And you, you said you teach um, Moore's Utopia to your students. What, what are the, some, some of the main things or the messages that, that it gave us, some of the main things that you teach uh, about it? Well, I tend to, I mean, it's usually the, the students who sort of bring those perspectives, if you like, in terms of what they've, what they've taken from the text. And they find a range of things, I think, still, um, still kind of interesting and, and uh, compelling about it. I mean, usually people are struck by the elements of what seem to us to be communism in Moore's text, and particularly um, the ways in which everything is shared. Um, in terms of property and, and, you know, the ways that people live communally. Um, And I think that it's interesting to students to consider how Moore was picturing a communal kind of society as a way of thinking about 
how people are able to live together, you know, kind of whether it's possible for people to live together in better ways. And students usually find that quite interesting, I think. There does seem to be a, a sort of negative link between utopia and capitalism. You quote Mark Fisher in the article, he said it's yeah. easier to imagine the end of the world than of capitalism. And effectively, because capitalism now seems to be so dominant a discourse, it's almost killed off utopia because um, you can't imagine a world which doesn't have the structures that we have today. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Marx Fisher's work on capital, capitalism and, and the idea that, that we are simply no longer capable of imagining an alternative to a capitalist future um, is really interesting in relation to Moore's utopia and the development of utopian thinking. Um, because I think it, again, it sort of opens up a space for thinking about alternate realities. Um, you know, that's what utopian thinking does. And I think Fisher's work um, in you know, suggesting that we should open up that space, that we should be a bit braver and a bit more imaginative um, in our thinking about the future is, you know, is interesting. How did the term and indeed like the genre of utopian writing, how did that evolve over time, you know, from Moore's first work there to, um, you know, as the Enlightenment came along? I get the feeling it kind of shifted from a work of kind of pure exercise in imagination to something that had to have a, a more practical application. Yes, I think that's true in some ways. I mean, early utopias are, you know, sort of 16th century utopias after more often have, you know, quite sort of specific aims. They're, they're trying to imagine societies and they're putting forward those societies as, as direct models um, for their own um, society. Um, but utopias did change, I think, from being these quite imaginative, playful spaces for exploring um, different ideas about or different, you know, different ideas about reality or different ways of living into much more practical schemes. And you see that happening into the 17th century, um, particularly in the middle of the 17th century, when um, a number of writers are really using utopian mode of discourse to um, explore how they might make direct improvements to their own society. And utopias do become very practical um, and very practically minded. But as that happens, um, utopian writers tend to reject, I suppose for understandable reasons, the more imaginative elements of utopian fiction. So they're less interested in depicting journeys and different um, peoples and different lands in, in that sort of detail. They, they want rather to insist on the possibility of utopia in their own time, essentially. You, you, um, you, so, mentioned, you mentioned a book, uh, which is a bit later than that, which seems to return back to the notion at least of a sort of satirical fiction which is William Morris's News from Nowhere which is Victorian I, I think what's yes um, that connects I suppose utopia and capitalism up once more what's the what, what's the thrust of that well um, Morris's News from Nowhere is about um, a man called William Guest who he he wakes up and he realizes that he's been uh, transported from his own life uh, living in contemporary London to um, a future version of the city in which he lives. And it's um, very idealised. It's a, a sort of socialist utopia, really. Um, and the book explores, I think, a number of ideas that Morris had um, and sort of ideas that he was interested in, in terms of how society might work differently, how it might be improved. To a certain extent, it's also, I think, a response to global capitalism and its development and Morris's um, anxiety, really, that people working and, and you know people who are kind of living and working in London at the time that he is um, are becoming distant not only from the product of their labor uh, but also from the natural world if you like from what oh. is um, natural for people and, and what should be uh, at the basis of their lives. It's interesting you won't notice but your, your piece is paired with a couple of other pieces one of which is about a, a book called What Might Have Been by Ernest Brammer who I'd never heard okay. of and he was writing at the turn of the 20th century and his was an anti-socialist utopian it basically showed what happened when the socialists took over everything right. gets nationalized and poor middle class people are effectively impoverished and, and the world is finally rescued by capitalists returning and in, in, instilling the free market once more 
Um, which suggests again that these that the, the idea of a utopia is a, is a useful political tool for for someone who wishes it to be. Yes, I think so. I mean, in some ways, utopias have struggled, I think, to be taken seriously politically, actually, because partly because of the associations with the idea and the form of utopia. Um, you know, utopia is, by its very nature, something which cannot exist. And right from the earliest usage of the word, I mean, if you look back to 16th and 17th century use of the word utopia, it very quickly becomes something which is largely used pejoratively, um, or it's used to mean something entirely unrealistic or impossible. So utopian um, thinking, I think if we used it now, would we, if oh, that person showed utopian thinking, we'd probably, that that, car- that connotes a certain amount of unre- unrealistic, yeah. I suppose, doesn't it? It does, yes. I mean, I think it suggests a sort of a fond, fairly benevolent attitude towards somebody who is not entirely realistic or, you know, not entirely um, practical. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's still the case. And I think, for, you, you know, utopias or utopian writers to a certain extent have struggled with that problem because that it's very difficult to insist upon the usefulness of something which is inherently unreal. Yeah. Whether or not dystopia was invented by John Stuart Mill, and I really hope it was, though someone pointed out to me on Twitter that there was something referenced it in 1747, so maybe it wasn't. But in any event, well, dystopia right. is a... Um, is it, it's become a critical idea, I suppose, in, in modern thinking, the idea of dystopia. Why do you think that, that in some ways, has caught the imagination more than utopia? Well, perhaps it's that dystopia sort of speaks to our times, um, as you've mentioned in that Ursula Le Guin essay, um, explores that idea. Um, I think that utopia, um, uh, dystopia rather, um, is often is often kind of used to mean um, dystopian literature. You know, so when we talk of a dystopia, we often mean a dystopian text. Yeah. Um, but dystopias aren't necessarily. Um, fictional. This is a point that um, Ruth Levitas makes in her book, The Concept of Utopia. The dystopias aren't necessarily fictional. They can often, we can have sort of quite factual or non-fictional um, imaginings of dystopian societies. I think there are ways in which those speak to us at the moment. But I mean, you could make the argument, and I, maybe I would, that today's reality is less dystopian than it's ever been, but yes. more often called dystopian. Yes, that's right. Well, it's a bit of a, I mean, this is the point um, that uh, Rutger Bregman makes in his book that um, I reviewed uh, in the piece of the TLS, which is he starts from the position of saying, we have never lived um, in a better time. Um, And he's really arguing, I suppose, that the relative comfort in which, you know, human beings find themselves now has has made them forget about utopia and, and utopian thinking and its value. So, yes, I think that there is always a place for both, if, if that makes sense. I but, don't think it has to be a dystopian or a utopian age. No, but I guess that, you convenient. Know, if, you, if you were to pick any other time in, in history, you know, where death rates were higher than now, you know, there's been catastrophic global warfare, there's been the influenza epidemic, you know, all sorts of things that really would perhaps suggest a dystopia. I just wonder whether, are we, are we sort of hypersensitive now that as soon as Donald Trump says a silly tweet... We say it's like a dystopia. It's a bit like the word Orwellian maybe has sort of lost a bit mm. of its meaning. You know, we, we, a long supermarket queue is Orwellian and, <laughs> and therefore we're kind of too easy. We perhaps, are we too keen to grasp the term maybe? I think it does get overused, absolutely. We are perhaps a little bit too keen to apply it to situations where it doesn't apply. Uh, you mentioned Ursula again. There's a great quote uh, in the piece uh, which says that to try to think of utopia in this world without rage, without fury, is an indulgence we can't afford. In the face of what is done, we cannot think of utopia without hate, which is suggestive of the notion that utopia should be practical towards change. Is that your view? Is that is is, is that where we've got to? Do you think that there's no point in having these ideas unless they're going to have a real world consequence? Well, I think there are different answers to that question. I mean, I'm someone who, you know, reads books, uh, not just because I'm not just interested in thinking about their application, obviously, to our own society or to the future, but because of what they tell us about the societies that created them. Um, And my primary interest in reading utopias actually isn't isn't really in thinking about, you know, their usefulness now. It's usually in thinking about what they can tell me about the past um, and the culture of the period um, in which they were written. So, Personally, I don't think that utopias have to be useful in that way. Um, I think that they can have other functions. But can um, they be useful, do you think? They can be useful in what they enable us and encourage us to do. Because utopias really, or utopian thinking, is in many ways, or, or primarily perhaps, a way of 
challenging the status quo. It's a way of opening up an imaginative space. And in that space, we might consider alternatives to things that might otherwise seem unimaginable. I mean, I think that's what utopia does for us as a society. And that is still important. And it's still, you know, it's still something that I think we should be doing. So in that sense, utopias can be useful. But I think it's usually a mistake to read utopia as a blueprint or a, a handbook of ideas that you might turn to and lift. Typically, when that happens, I think it probably doesn't go very well. I think we have to, we have to, it's, I would rather say that it's the utopian um, imagination or the utopian impulse, which we might want to hold on to, not the nuts and bolts of utopias themselves. Chloe Houston, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you. Which is, I suppose, why Thomas More's utopia has lived on as as long as it has because you're never quite sure whether what he's suggesting is is a good thing or a bad thing no, and it's, it's that such sort of, a slippery slippery text because it's the, that sort of humanism where they're being arch and ironic and and parodic all the time it does like you say it doesn't it's supposed to be read to so it's almost a demonstration of cleverness isn't it it's a demonstration of being able to shift around concepts and rather than i'm just struck by that yes again quote of if someone said, let's join a utopian movement, it it almost feels self-defeating, don't you think? Because to me, it means a, a movement that... Well, it's like those Americans who set up those, you know, in the 19th century, set up all those farms, collective farms, because they thought yeah. they had a sense of ideals. They all failed because they... Well, yes, the utopia, I mean, they have a very strong tradition of failing, but I yeah. suppose the utopian impulse is one of, of bettering things. Do you so, have a utopian impulse? Do I have a... a Yes. Do you? Probably. I mean, in that I'm hopeful and I hope things will get better. Yeah, so and, I, and I have I, the exact I opposite of that. I have a cynical impulse, I think. I, think, I suppose it depends on, on what day it is, <laughs> yeah. how I feel on, on the day. But, I mean, on on the whole, yeah, I mean, I hope I hope things will yeah. get better. And, and I, I suppose if, if people are working towards that by, you know, writing sometimes outlandish texts that challenge us to think about whether public ownership or private ownership is, is better than that can only be a good thing. I suppose with Thomas More's book, you have a society in which there's no such thing as private property and all of the houses are built with exactly the same specifications and no one's allowed to lock their doors and I think people are moved around every few days so that they don't become attached to their own space. So they're fundamentally equal. But then there's a little something that's slipped in, like the fact that to walk around uh, this society, you have to be issued with a special license. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, y- you never really know where you stand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that is what makes you keep thinking about it and what you want and but what could tra- work and what couldn't. But it's interrogating it rather than I think the notion exactly. of you, utopian, you know, utopianism as a as a movement misses that, doesn't it? In, in that sense, because it's the irony or the the interrogation is critical here. You know, because otherwise that, that bit there, you know, you'd have Seamus Milne listening. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> Everyone could move every. Uh, 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 every he he looks up from his notepad as you as you say that. Yeah, the thin <laughs> controller. You know, his nickname is. Yeah, I love that. Grim, possibly alternative futures have been a feature of Nick Harkaway's work since his debut novel, The Gone Away World, in 2012, set in a post-apocalyptic parallel Earth devastated by new military technology. Humanity exists in a toxic, fallout-free pipeline called the Livable Zone, successfully defended, at least until the start of the novel, by a special neutralising gas. After that novel came Angel Maker, a Cold War ticking bomb scenario, Tiger Man, a superhero origin story set on a benighted tropical island, and now Nomon, set in the ultimate surveillance state, which turns out to be far more familiar than one might hope. Asked by the TLS what his field would look like 25 years hence, Harkaway said, The same, but different. There will be stories for as long as there are people, and written stories for as long as people use signs to hold ideas. Perhaps I'll be working in tandem with an AI partner, the same way some research doctors are doing now. Or perhaps I'll be scratching lines on the back of a rusted dustbin with my nails, fulminating in the wreckage. TLS commissioning editor Lucy Dallas went along to meet Nick Harkaway. She began by asking him how he pulled these proliferating storylines together. Whenever you have a detective story, you have a, a simple spine in that you have a crime, an investigation, and a solution. Mm-hmm. This one's folded in upon itself, but in a sense, that remains the truth. However, obviously, you have multiple woven narratives, unreliable storytellers, and so on. 
And so, yes, there's some complexity there. But in a sense, my whole job over the course of whatever it was, three or four years, was to make it so that the complexity was, for the most part, on my end. uh, And you can actually apprehend what's going on. But did you kind of map it out? I would normally map it out. But in fact, this apparently is what happens when I don't, in the sense that I knew approximately where I was going and I knew where I was beginning. But with this one, although, I mean, I told each story and I had a fair sense of what was going to happen in each of the sort of subsidiary narratives and so on, but I, I couldn't map it all out because the interplay is too complex. My head would have exploded. You can't carry mm, all of this in your head. Yeah, that's um, what I was wondering. And this, so I have always been very much a planner, not exhaustively, but I like to plan stories and know where they're going so that I can sort of note where I am as I write and so on. And um, this time I didn't do that with the consequence that it is Baroque, complex, many layered, fascinating, and it took forever. Um, uh, And it was slightly infuriating, but also uh, very rewarding. Well, it's very rewarding to read. But as I say, it's simple in the sense that there is a detective story which works itself out. But would it be fair for me to say it's not A to B? It's definitely not A to B. (laughs) No, it's sort of A, B, C, Pi, Gamma, Five, D. Through a different alphabet for a while. Indeed, we do do duck in and out. Yes. I'm going to make you work from the beginning, I'm afraid, because I'm going to say that usually I would start by giving a brief summary of the book. But I found this a rather difficult book to summarise briefly. So how about I start off and you join in and tell me if I've got it wrong or what's important about X, Y or Z, something like that. How does that sound? Absolutely. Let's go. Okay, good. So um, here goes. Nomon is the story of Diana Hunter, a citizen of a near future Britain, which is under total surveillance, which has come about democratically. And this system, with a capital S, is thought of by the vast majority of the population as being benign and protective. So far, so good. Except except by the time we... The first thing we learn in the book is that Diana Hunter's dead. That's the... Yes, but it is her story. Am I allowed to say that? Sorry, I can't contradict you. No, no, no. I mean, it is is her story. It's also the story of the the detective investigating what's happened. Yes, yes. No, I mean, quite. It is a salient fact that, that, that on the first page we are told she is dead. Yes. Um, So in this society, there are many votes happening all the time um, and the will of the people is scrupulously consulted. So it doesn't feel or on the face of it, it's not coerced. It's not totalitarian. No, it is by all means the most democratic society ever created, a rolling plebiscite democracy. Absolutely marvellous. Yeah. Um, And Diana Hunter is, was one of the few people who resist this. uh, And she lives off grid. Um, and is more or less untraceable until the system brings her in for questioning. Something goes wrong, and Miliki Neath, who is a very popular detective loyal to the system, which is, she's, she's part of what's called Witness, which is the policing arm of the system, she's called in to investigate, um, and she absorbs the interrogation of Diana Hunter's mind into her own, and then we get multiple narratives and counter-narratives, and different characters appear, including the mysterious Nomon, I'm quoting here, who is um, a sociopathic human intelligence from a future falling backwards in time to conduct four assassinations. And I reckon that's about 20% of what's going on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, is it, or, or it might be less than that. What, what, would you agree? I, I, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big book, and it took a long time to write, and the stories are interwoven. Yes, when they open up uh, Diana Hunter's mind, what they find is, is not her life, which is obviously what they're expecting and what they're looking for, because that's how they do jurisprudence under the system. Uh, they just have a look and see what actually happened in your head. They find instead the lives of four other people. You have uh, Nomon, who's let's say, ambiguous, and you have Constantin Kyriakos, who's a Greek banker, pursued by a sort of ghostly shark. You have Athenaeus Carthaginensis, who is the ex-girlfriend of St. Augustine of Hippo. And this is true, incidentally. Um, Augustine uh, had a lover who bore him a child, and her name, as far as I can tell, is nowhere written down. Hmm. Um, and when he ascended to the greater heights of the church... His mother encouraged him to put her aside, which he did, in favour of a, a young Christian girl uh, whom he eventually didn't marry. And then the son, Adiodatus, dies uh, quite young. And the, the, the story of this woman is then, as far as I know, completely lost. I mean, you can look at the confessions as a 13-book breakup note. But apart from that, mm. we know almost nothing about her, which is actually extraordinary and yes, fascinating. She's the past that he has to put behind him in order to become St Augustine of Hippo in a way. Yes, and more than that, I mean, you know, this was a woman, he had a relationship with her, I think lasted seven years, more than that actually, much more, and yet 
Uh, we know nothing about her. He was, you know, say what you like about St. Augustine, he was a formidable intellect. She probably was as well, um, you know, and and yet we know nothing. So, you know, I, got, I couldn't resist that. So then we have her story as well, and, and she finds herself sucked into a, an alchemical intrigue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have uh, Berihun Bekele, who is uh, an Ethiopian pop artist in the 70s in Addis Ababa, who then has to flee and ends up here. And who finds that his granddaughter has created a games design company, which he then works for with curious and unlikely results. So, I mean, it's a big, wide sequence of narratives which are all bound together. And, of course, it's not just that they're sort of concealed in Hunter's head. They're trying to tell us something. Um, and how how did you keep hold of it? Because it reminded me a little bit. It didn't remind me of any other book, really, but the only thing that the structure of it reminded me of, though it's not symmetrical in the same way, is um, David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas. Right. With, and with Nomon, I thought it was more like like matryoshka dolls, like buried yeah. inside each other. And I was, each one you got in, you had to find the next one. I mean, obviously I was reaching for things like Cloud Atlas and Photon Umberto Echo and, and so on. It does have a matryoshka doll structure. It also has a slightly, if I'm right, it still has a sort of bilateral symmetry. Normally I would break things into three, um, because three acts is crime, investigation, solution and so on. But this one actually, although it does have that structure in it as well, it splits down the middle and things go to a, a peak and then sort of they go down the other side and then they peak again but there's a there's a kind of mirror image in the middle of the book mm-hmm. like a butterfly yes oh exactly oh, very nice now i'm going to use that next time it's much better than a peak in the middle yes no exactly like, like a butterfly or a raw shark blot yeah 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 and it also seemed to me that it, it's that, that the language is is quite experimental as well it, it sometimes it breaks down under pressure Yes, I mean, there's a, there's a specific moment where you have a, a character under almost unimaginable mental stress and the language starts to break down, which is something I would probably not have dared to do until now. I, I'm wary of experimental writing in that sense. I think, you know, it can be absolutely amazing, but it can also just be annoying and obstructive, and I didn't want to do that. But when I got to that point in the book, I just didn't see there was any other way of expressing what was happening than to let the language break down. But you didn't feel that you had to keep it within a, let's say, conventional narrative? I think with this book I just followed the narrative wherever it was going and very often I went down uh, blind alleys and had to come back and go somewhere else. I mean, always in approximately the same direction but sometimes, you know, I would just be thinking this has gone the wrong place and I can't go onwards from here. The Cohen brothers are very fond of saying that uh, some of the best writing they do is, is when they write themselves into a corner and have to write themselves out again. Mm-hmm. And I definitely did that in this book, but I also occasionally just erased the corner. Right, you're um, into a and corner just kind of like, you know you what, actually, yeah, yes, okay, I'm uh, stuck. Uh, this book is already long enough. It does not need a 250-page digression to get me out of this particular corner. <laughs> it feels very different from your other novels, especially The Gone Away World and Angel Maker, which seem to me to be... Um, lighter and more consciously playing with genre like science fiction and fantasy and anime and steampunk are you less concerned with those genre ideas i know there are elements of genre in it as you said detective story and there's the science fiction and there is also dystopia i guess yeah i mean obviously there's a progression going on because i wrote gone away world 10 years ago mm. um and i've written a lot of things since then uh, and gone away world and angel maker are on some level i think they're more apologetic i've always been wary of being too serious for me it has a connotation of putting yourself forward which is of course very un-British but this time in this moment this was the book I wanted to write and so here we are it's very interesting about the way in which we treat genre and the way in which we treat literature and I think I mean in a sense that relationship is changing and there's an acknowledgement going on that I mean, apart from anything else, a lot of things that would have been genre at the time are now hallowed by the passage of time. Mm. Raymond Chandler is genre, but he's fabulous, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you don't need the but. No, you don't need the but. But. Well, precisely. But on some level, there's still, particularly with science fiction, there's still the kind of two cultures, C.P. Snow discussion going on. And particularly, I mean, I'm fascinated by this because uh, apart from anything else, I think it absolutely has to be that we include technology and science in our literary writing and in our general fiction writing because without those things you do not have a real picture of what humanity is you know i think people very often tend to try to reach for an emotional truth of humanness when they're writing books and they think mobile telephones computers and so on get in the way of that um, and therefore i will discard them in the narrative there's a fascinating dialogue about it between paul Astor and uh, jm kurtzy 
in their in their letters where you know they, they talk about this and I, I with the greatest of respect to Kurtz I don't think you can get away anymore with simply refusing to use communications technologies and refer to science and describe the human condition because you're just writing historical fiction about sort of 1992 and claiming it's contemporary and it just isn't anymore there are places in the world you can go to where there are fewer of those things but then you've already engaged in a kind of flight from your topic Mm -hmm. the underlying human truth that you're looking for isn't there because we've always created ourselves in cooperation with our machines from the moment when we started using flint through the mechanical clock which without which you can't have capitalism with which we all live and so on you know these things are fundamental to what and who we are and to ignore that relationship is is i think spurious and i'm very pleased that we are increasingly allowing narratives with technological elements into the sort of wider discussion of general fiction and so on I also think it's critical because so much of our lives now are defined by and bounded by technology that if we don't discuss technology as part of the popular discourse and so on and as part of the human discourse, we end up uh, being amazed by it all the time and being caught by surprise. So we didn't talk about deep data analysis and the effect it could have on elections and lo and behold, here we are. are. We're not talking about CRISPR-Cas. We're not talking about these extraordinary developments in technology and in biotechnology. And and the result of that will be, unless we start to have the conversation, we will end up being amazed by the fact that that direction has already been chosen when we wanted... Oh, look what happened. Oh, look what happened. It it begins with the conversation, oh, it sounds like science fiction, but... And the thing is, it doesn't sound like science fiction anymore because it is simply the world that we inhabit. The fact that it surprises us is because we don't talk about science and technology. And in fact... The dialogue around this book is fascinating to me because when I started writing Nomon, it was sort of 2013, 2014, and I invented a bunch of technologies of surveillance. And specifically, I invented, not invented, but extrapolated direct neural interview where you go into a room, not unlike this one, and lie down and they read your mind. Can with, I just say that's know. not what we're doing here. This is, this, this is a yes. conventional studio situation. <laughs> and yet, as I imagine it, there's a, there's a camera on the wall, there's a whole bunch of recording equipment and there's a, a, a glass uh, window and a, and a booth with someone watching us. I mean, you know, it's not completely different. But um, that direct neural interview in the book requires surgery. They go in and they put in a chip on the brain and then having done this rather invasive thing they then kind of tidy up your brain and one of the sort of happy side effects of having one of these interviews is that your brain works better for a bit because you've been kind of sort of sluiced out and they've blown the dust out earlier this year a researcher at caltech uh, named doris tau announced that she and her team had successfully read uh, an image or reconstructed an image from the brain of a monkey and the quality of that image if you go online and have a look uh, you will see it is effectively a passport photograph quality image Gosh. So what I wrote about was fictional then. Now the book has come and out it took f- and it three, four years for it to is no longer yeah. completely fictional. It's yeah. now a sort of plausible thing. I knew there was a guy in Japan who could read vague images from your mind with an fMRI machine when I started writing. Mm. But the change in what's possible is spectacular. Now, before someone says in a trial, criminal trial, well, actually, we'll just put a headset on you, we should ask ourselves whether that's self-incrimination or whether that's perfect justice. Yes, which is well, which is which is what's going on, isn't it? In no one that perfect justice is what's assumed. I was interested. One of the, I mean, we want to talk about technology and, and privacy as well. But one of the, you suggest in the book is a boundary of privacy is the skin. Yes, that you shouldn't. You actually let's have it as a basic rule. Somebody suggests, okay, nobody should put anything onto your skin. How about that as a boundary? Yeah. Um, and and I mean, as a more simple version of what you were saying, there, I was just reading about um, people who've had microchips put yes. in under the skin to open doors and have been using them for. This lady's been using them for a year and a half to yeah. open the doors and to get into your lab, and it's pretty. It's basic at the moment, but it won't be for very long. No, absolutely. And, you know, the stuff is is reasonably extraordinary. And there was a case in Ohio a couple of years ago of a guy whose pacemaker data was used to challenge his alibi in a criminal trial. Now, Mm -hmm. and the judge in the trial said, this is not sufficiently private that there is a problem. The pacemaker wasn't sufficiently private. The data from the pacemaker was not a sufficiently private thing. There were more private things that he would be more worried about, he said. Right. Now, I find it difficult to imagine anything that is more sort of basic than your actual heart something in your heart (laughs) it does sound pretty private Um, it does sound private to me so all right if you feel that way then we should probably legislate that 
or at the very least we should create it as a as uh, you know a sort of state of guidance for interrogation you know and for for investigation no actually you can't bring pacemaker data into the court in the UK you know we have to start thinking about this stuff because it will be possible otherwise before we have thought of it and there was an editorial in a magazine um, when I was writing the book which said you know because of the level of physical intrusion which is required to retrieve information directly from the brain no government would ever contemplate such a radical intrusion and I thought well okay hang on let's posit the favoured emergency scenario of people who, who want greater security powers, the ticking time bomb terrorist, how quickly would that person be on an operating table mm. in quite a lot of countries before the judge had a wig on? Yeah. So actually we have to ask that question. If it becomes less necessary to do physical intrusion, if you can just put a headset in somebody, on somebody, actually there's going to be a demand that we do it. And it's arguable that that demand is actually fair enough. Only as it transpires, memory is not a video camera. Nor is it reliable. It's not reliable. And in fact, we remake it every time we remember something, we change it mm. in our minds because, as it turns out, memory has evolved as a tool for helping us make good decisions today, not for recording what actually happened yesterday. So it's updated in the light of subsequent experience. Mm. So then, what are you actually reading and how quickly does that memory decay past the point where it's usable in a criminal trial? Mm. Questions that we don't ask. Yes, if it's going to happen and we're going to make rulings about it, we need to think about it first. Exactly. Somebody needs to think about it. it, it in some ways, the whole book um, felt to me like a, a long and very rich and very enjoyable and very intricate warning, as though you were kind of slightly behind it shouting, think about this, this is important. <laughs> I, I mean, is that, does that, is that not, not being hectored, but that you were saying, look at this, let's direct our attention to this. There was, there was an element of that, certainly. And in fact, when I started writing the book... Um, one of the things I was warning about, because it was the David Cameron era, I was concerned, and this will strike you as frivolous now, that there might be in the wishy-washy neoliberal conservatism of the Cameron government and indeed of the preceding Blair Brown years, a deep streak of authoritarianism which could come back to haunt us. Mm. Um, in 2016... <laughs> Those are the days. <laughs> in 2016, I got some editorial notes, having finished the book, which said and this is early 2016, which said, uh, you're going to have to explain how we get from this present situation to the more bizarre and authoritarian state that we're in. And then by, let's say, the end of November 2016, those notes had been struck and I'd cut every explanation of how we got right. there. Not as a political statement, because people were no longer asking the question. My test readers were no longer needing to be told how the UK had slid from or changed from the society that we know into this society. Now, incidentally, it is worth asking whether this society is really a dystopia. The one the, the in society the book. in the book. Mm. Because although things happen in it that are bad, the framework which is proposed is legitimately democratic mm. and supportive of citizens and so on. And I don't like it. I did not enjoy writing that th because I think it's a toss-up whether it's more democratic and freer than the society we live in, and that is a rather unsettling notion. Because of the idea in terms of... Because the... because people aren't being polled directly and because the influences might be um, hidden oh, no, in no, terms no, of tech I mean, influences or no? No, no, no. I mean, just in terms of brute democratic structures. Right now we have a representative democracy which we don't trust. Mm. We don't trust our representative, uh, our, our representing politicians to do their job. So anytime something comes up which we think is serious, we start wanting them to take a mandate. It's not just Brexit, mm. actually. Any time there is something that someone feels is substantive, they feel that their politicians are not representing their interest and they are irritated that they can't recall that politician and demand to know why they're not acting on it. Yeah. Um, we have begun to think that the population as a whole has a greater right and a greater intelligence to govern than 
representatives do. And that is a conversation we should have because it isn't given that representative democracy is the best form of government that is possible. You mean so it's truly democratic because it's asking your brain? It's <laughs> what, well, no, 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 it's truly democratic because they constantly poll the population yeah. on any issue. So any time that we would have a vote in Parliament, mm. that goes to however many thousand people want to involve themselves. Yeah. And the decision is genuinely made by the people now. A lot of things go wrong with that in the course of the book, but it's not in and of itself undemocratic. That was Lucy Dallas talking to Nick Harkaway. A review of Nomon appears in this week's TLS. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Has there ever been an athlete more often described and evoked by wonderful writing than Muhammad Ali? Not only was he the best boxer of all time, but he was the boxer perhaps best treated by the written word. David Remnick has written a beautiful book about him. Thomas Hauser's biography of him was splendid. My own favourite sports book, Mail as the Fight, which told the tale of the rumble in the jungle, sought to achieve greatness, probably because it was inspired by the scale of the subject's ebullient greatness itself. We now have a new book to add to the list, Ali Alive by Jonathan Eig, the first to post-date his death in the summer of last year. What does it tell us and why do we need it? J. Michael Lennon, writer and biographer of Mailer, has reviewed the book in the TLS and joins Thea and me on the line now. Mike, is there really a need for a book like this? Yes, I think so. This is the first comprehensive biography of Ali. Uh, you know, he only died a couple of years ago. And so, but I was on the job before Ali died. He was out there interviewing people, getting access to Ali's friends and handlers and doctor and all those folks. So he was really deep into the job of doing, writing the book before Ali died. And then, of course, after he died, he spent a couple of more years on it. And so it's the first comprehensive biography of Ali. And if you want me to say one more thing, there is something that's uh, uh, radically new about this biography in that I enlisted a computer boxing firm to analyze every single fight of Ali's over the 20 years of his career, 21 years, that there was a film or tape of. And, and that was the majority of them. And he was able to allow this firm to determine how many times Ali got hit. 
uh, and how many times he hit others. And of course, that's, that's difficult to predict and so on and how hard is a punch, but sometimes you can tell. And what he found out is that Ali was hit 200,000 times in his career. 200,000? 200,000 times he was hit uh, over the course of 21 years in about or, you know close to 100 fights. So that's an amazing statistic. And uh, he didn't hit his opponents uh, nearly as much, especially in the last 10 years of his career when he took twice as many punches as he gave. So that analysis, which he doesn't overdo, it's just put in there here and there after a fight, and you get the sense of it, and it builds its cumulative effect until you realize the tragedy of Ali's later life when um, basically he got Parkinson's or CTE. I mean, his brain was really... Um, uh, destroyed. You mentioned uh, after the thriller in Manila, uh, Ali turns to a reporter and says, why do I do this? Um, yes. Which is a significant question, um, particularly in light of what you've just said. By the end of this book, do you have an answer? Do you get a sense of why he did it? Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, um, he loved the adulation. I and mean, he loved to be loved uh, uh, by everybody. He gave away his money to his friends, to his family, to people who met him on the street. So while he made millions and millions of dollars, he gave it all away. He blew it. He invested in everything. But he needed to be loved. He needed that adulation. He needed to be the center of things. And that was one, one part of it. Um, the other part of it was he felt he had a destiny to be the greatest fighter of all time. And, you know, arguably he was. I mean, we can, uh, we can play that game of whether he was better than uh, Jack Armstrong or Jack Johnson or any of the great fighters uh, of the past, and we'll never really know. But... Uh, there's a preponderance of people, I think, in this, uh, who, who watch boxing who think he was one of the, the greatest fighters of all time. Um, so that, that's, I think, those, those, those are the things that impelled him. Did his race, uh, and, then, and, then, which, and then I suppose the religious oh, yes. aspect, did, did, that, did that drive him as well, do you think, race consciousness? Absolutely, absolutely, and I should have mentioned that. Uh, his race consciousness did. He wanted to be, uh, as he said, the big black nigger who who scared white people he said that's my goal i want to do that and um that was because he grew up in a segregated town in the united states was half black and half white louisville and um he he recognized the oppression of blacks in the united states and then you know he got involved with the nation of islam and the nation of islam was a separatist organization and said you know blacks should just stay away from whites and there should be a line between them and you should there should be no integration no uh, racial integration of any kind at all. And he bought into that for a long time. So that impelled him. He became a champion of the Nation of Islam. Later on, he came to his senses, and he realized that it, was a, that it, it itself was a racist organization, and he, he slowly you know, disintegrated his ties and became sort of a mainstream uh, Muslim. He made a pilgrimage to Mecca, took that to Hajj. So in many ways, his, his life paralleled that of Malcolm X's, in that he began hating whites and hating and wanting a separatist existence. But as time went on, uh, that ameliorated, and he had a much broader uh, humanistic version of, of the relation between the races. And, of course, he was involved with Malcolm X as well, certainly in the, in the earlier stages. Um, and then Martin Luther King, what, what did he make of him? Uh, their impressions of each other, I think, changed over time. Yes, they did. Initially, they were they were quite opposed to each other because Martin Luther King really had nothing nothing but uh, enmity for the Nation of Islam. But when they saw that their causes could combine, and this was during the Vietnam War when Ali was convicted of draft evasion, and Martin Luther King made this terrific historic swerve when he said, "You know, this isn't just about civil rights. This is also about." the rights to resist uh, an unjust war. And so he linked the anti-war campaign that was going on in the, in the late 60s in the U.S. with, with, um, with Ali's effort, and they became um, allies in the war and against the war. And, and in time, you know, it was Ali's resistance uh, to the war in Vietnam that overshadowed everything and made him... Uh, went from being one of the most despised people in the United States in the, in, say, around 1965. By the time, by 1971, when uh, the Supreme Court reversed his, uh, his decision and he was free to box again, he was probably the most, one of the most beloved people on the planet. But meanwhile, he'd had four years out the game, and then yes. 
uh, presumably what then happens in the 70s, you have the rumble in the jungle where he took the most punishment you can almost imagine when you rewatch that or the thriller in Manila as well. Do, you, do, do, do we link the two together? That four years enforced inaction led to him becoming the boxer he was in, in, in the 70s. Still brilliant, but ultimately killing himself by taking punches. You, you put it perfectly. That's what he was doing. I mean, he took an awful lot of punches. You know, I was reading over the biography again. You know, when he fought Henry Cooper in England in 1963, Cooper may have hit him with one of the, worst, the toughest punches he ever got in his life. Yeah. And if Ali had not opened up a cut over Cooper's eye at the beginning of the fifth round, Cooper very well could have won the fight because Ali was, was out on his feet. He was out on his feet, and uh, he almost didn't get up for the fifth round. But he did. He bounced back. He opened up the cut. Cooper uh, was always getting was a bleeder, and was always getting hit and getting those cuts. And the same thing happened the next, when he fought Cooper again uh, several years later. Uh, it was a disaster, and Cooper was bleeding all over, and, and Ali won. Ali knew how to open up cuts over people's eyes and faces. He was very good. That jab of his was such a just it just you know it just demobilized people. It discombobulated them, and it, he was always pushing them and hitting them with every kind of jab, and, and they kind of, you know, those those punches, those gloves would rub against the side of somebody's face and over the, the, the skin over the eye and, and open up those cuts, and nobody knew how to do it surgically. He did it surgically, and it was terrifically effective. Um, let's talk about, about Mela. I mean, uh, the fight has, is, I would think, almost without dispute, one of the greatest sports books, books about sport uh, ever written. Um, what was Mailer's relationship like with with Ali? Did that change? Um, well, it it they met in 1963 in Las Vegas. Mailer was in awe of him, and uh, their relationship. Mailer just started attending all of his fights, all of his fights, and finally started writing about him. But Mailer was just as suspicious of him as as everybody when he came up as the Nation of Islam figure. He didn't really care for him that much, but he was intrigued by them. He saw Mailer had, you know, an eye for, for the unusual, and he saw that Ali was was not an ordinary fighter. There was something different about him. And he was very brash and outspoken, and of course, Mailer was himself. So Mailer, Mailer said, "I'm your intellectual progenitor. I'm 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 the one that is doing intellectually what you're doing in the ring." And then when Mailer wrote about his fights with with Joe Frazier in 1970, the, the 1971 fight in New York City. And then, of course, with the fight, Ali began to have great respect for Mailer. Uh, and he saw that Mailer was a top achiever, that Mailer would get a million dollars advanced for one of his books. And he used to call him Norman Million uh, because he had, a, you know, he, he liked people who came out on top. And he thought Mailer was, was one of those guys. And, and I think I don't know if Ali ever read any of what Mailer uh, wrote about him. He certainly had passages of it read to him, and he had great respect for Mailer. And uh, over the years, uh, they saw each other all the time. Mailer went up and visited and did stuff for Ali's charities. And Ali came to Mailer's 75th birthday party at Rockefeller Center, where I met Ali. Uh, and he was still very sharp then. And what did you and make of it? Yeah, what was that like? What was yeah? What was it like? Well, to... it was it was an, it was an amazing event. It was maybe 500 people there, and it, well, many of the famous, most famous writers in America were there. William Styron was there, and George Plimpton was there, and Susan Sontag. All these people are in the room, all coming up, shaking Norman's hand for his birthday, and all the waiters who were mainly Hispanic, Hispanic and African American waiters were passing out hors d'oeuvres, and they didn't care if William Styron was there. They could care less. All of a sudden, there was a hush in the room. Everybody stopped. There was no talking, and we looked over the corner of the room, and there was Ali walking in. And all the waiters immediately just went right over to him and surrounded, surrounded him and patted him on the back and shook his hand. And he, was, he became a celebrity. He took over the party. <laughs> and so eventually, he got over to Mailer, and I got to meet him, and um, Ali leaned over, and Mela told him who I was, and I was there with my wife and my son. He leaned over, and he got very close, and he said to me, you're not as dumb as you look. <laughs> and I, I didn't know what... What did you say to the mic? What did you say to that? Well, insulted. What did you say? When I read Ike's biography, I found out that was a line he used for many, many years. Yeah. And he found that it just it knocked people back because they didn't really know how to react. And so he used it. It was his general. His and then he did uh, tricks. You know, he did uh, parlor tricks. He had parachutes and uh, 
and 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 doilies and birds coming out of his uh, suit pockets and his sleeves and stuff like that. He was a great great for doing that kind of stuff. I feel like that's some, that's a part you don't really hear about so much. <laughs> the uh, the kind no, of the, the trickster no, with you the doilies. But it was everywhere he went, he did that. And then the last time I saw him, he came to an event uh, that the Norman Mailer Center re- uh, ran in New York City about what four years ago, five years, four or five years ago. And he was there, sunglasses on, didn't say a word very quiet just sat there and everybody lauded him and uh my wife went up and got him to sign a photo of him and his and his current wife and his signature was perfect this was the beginning of the night at the end of the night i went up and i had a copy of the fight mailer's copy and it was signed by mailer i said i'm going to get ali to sign it and i'll have maybe the only one in the world and i went up and his sister-in-law told him who i was and you know and he they put a pen in his hand and he just kind of you couldn't it wasn't a signature and you, I could tell that just in the in the, the stress of that evening just immediately you know he was he was almost turned to stone it was very very sad mm-hmm. he could not speak at all um, for the last five or six years of his life he barely was able to say a word so the end of Ike's biography which is a, a terrific book you know the, the interviews and the background are fabulous and um, but the saddest thing is the ending is is that Ali, the guy who was the the ex the, the classic extrovert, changed what you know a, a star athlete was for all time. I mean, you know, you didn't hear Joe DiMaggio or or uh, Lou Gehrig or any of the great baseball players or even Joe Lewis. They they didn't talk a lot. They they were not out. You know, Ali changed all that. And here, this terrific the the the, the, the Cassius. Gaseous Cassius, as they call them, uh, was was just a silent figure. Uh, he turned to stone at the end. I think the the end of the biography is is enlivened a bit because of that great uh, moment when he carries the torch at the Olympics yeah. mm. and ninety uh, six, and that's the same time that that great uh, documentary that won the Academy Award came out. When we were the kings, kings. Yeah. have you seen that? Yeah, it's an ama- amazing. It's an amazing, amazing film. It's amazing, amazing. Film. I, I'm just finally, Mike. Do you think Ali was conscious then in those later years of the price he'd paid? for his success, the price he'd paid for his greatness, and that was the illness that was slowly eating him away. Do you reckon that's a calculation he ever made in his mind? Yes, I think he did. And and I guess very good at, you know, people would, would say to him, you know, they would ask that question essentially to him. You know, well, you know, champ, uh, you, you took an awful lot of punishment, you know, but was it worth it? And he said, yes, it was worth it. He said, I would do it all over again. i take every single punch for what I did for my people, for what I did for the sport, for what I did for my family, and, you know, all of that. I mean, he was all, he became really a very religious person um, and a very generous person, and he felt that he could do good in the world uh, after his boxing career, and, of course, he tried to do that. I mean, he gave away, God, the money he gave away, and the money he was cheated out of. You know, Don King uh, was one of the great, you know, he used Ali, and and he would give Ali suitcases full of money, and it might be twenty five thousand dollars in it, and then he'd get him to sign a contract. And uh, you know, he knew that that Ali couldn't didn't understand how checks work. Ali just liked cash. He would he would uh, fill up the top drawer of a, of a hotel uh, bureau in in a hotel and and tell Ali to go in. You can take as much as you can with both hands. He'd rather take that than a check for a half a million dollars. Amazing, and that—that that was how simple he was when it came to money. Uh, he was—he was vastly ignorant when it came to anything financial. Mm. Well, Mike, thank you so. I mean, it's, it's your piece is full of stories. This book is is clearly uh, full of stories. It's been a great pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. That party, incidentally, the, uh... <laughs> were you there? Yeah. <laughs> Who would not want to be at that party? Mm. New York. When would that, when May is 75th, when would that have been? Uh, about yeah. 12 years ago. Even, yeah. So just all of that sort of, when, yeah. you know, when there were still lots of, because there aren't really yeah. any great American writers well, around as, like they, they were then. And the but, ones that Mike just, just listed, you know, Susan Sontag drifting around, yeah. all of that sort of stuff. There is something so, uh, so, you know, literary about someone like Muhammad Ali, exactly. you know, because people would just gravitate him towards him because he, he you know, he would be perceived as this, this enigma. That was that was part of what 
Mailer was criticised for, wasn't it? When he when he wrote. Um, have you read the book? But no, I've I haven't. I haven't. Absolutely. Read I mean, it's like extracts. all it's like all Mailer. It's, I've read it's, a lot of criticism about it. It's slightly it, but, overwritten. Yeah. And, but because he's inspired, but you can see he's, it's one of those perfect matches of writer and subject. Because mm. Ali was kind of ridiculous. Uh, he, he his mouth ran away from him the whole time. He bordered on genius mm. and then easily lapsed into sort of facility and that's exactly what Norman Mailer was. Yeah, and then Mailer did the thing of putting himself so much in it. Yeah, but it's it's really good though. Mm. I mean I remember reading it when I was a teenager and it just knocked me over with how I mean you don't get sports writing like that ever. Mm. Um and it he just he just clearly and the whole because it was so crazy he's in Zaire mm. and um uh, he gets injured, has to stay there, and the guy, the dictator of Zaire, is is pretty much keeping him there. And there's this great bit in it, which I always think of about Donald Trump and uh, and actually anything in in modern politics. Um, the dictator is so he wants to remove all colonial traces, and he says, "Okay, I'm going to call the currency Zaire to, to to reinforce our nationhood." And someone says to him, "Actually, Zaire is a Portuguese word; it's a colonial word." And what happens is he gets, that's the point in which the dictator then calls everything in the country's eye mm. is that when you make a mistake if you're an autocrat reinforce you it. double down immediately yeah. you immediately say all right the river Zaire, this is Zaire, it's the Zaire currency, Zaire bank. We'll uh, own it. We'll own it and then we'll obliterate any argument because we're just going to do it. So yeah, and, and the book's full of stuff like that. Mm. Um, he was born in 23, Mailer. So don't make me do the maths now. 75 would be 98. Okay, yeah, so So you'd be just at the tail end of that New York 80s, you know, yeah. the uh, big authors. Um Muhammad Ali wanders in. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Amazing <laughs> stuff. Uh, that's all I think we have time for. Thanks go to to J Michael Lennon. Uh, to Nick Harkaway, to Disney's very own Lucy Dallas and to Chloe Houston. Do go to z-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the paper, our science fiction special. We cover strange novels of the 19th and early 20th century and we have a brand new and brilliantly weird story by M. John Harrison. Next week we review the sort of books you might buy somebody for Christmas and ponder the marvel it is the illustration of children's literature. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.